welcome to Conversations with Tita and Tiffany and Shahira. Yay! I'm super excited about this conversation. We're going to be talking about the wealth gap between Black people and white people. We know it's there. Some people don't know it's there, but we're going to talk about the history of it, why it is, where it is, what's happening right now, and then the future of um, eventually, hopefully, yes, not having a gap at all. How amazing would that be? So Tita, introduce your amazing friend. We're both in Texas. We're just having an awesome chat before this, and we're going to talk about her book as well. So go for it. Yes. So, well, I'm excited to bring on Shahira Wooten for many reasons. One is we're novel sisters. Um, She used to live in Orlando, Florida with me, and that's actually how I got to meet her. And two is she was my client. So I got to do her rebrand of late. And so it's super excited to, I'm super excited to have her on um, because I've seen like just through the evolution of the rebrand and her book project, just how much she has become very influential when it comes to financing or finances, I should say. So I'm super excited to have her here to talk about the wealth gap because I think the wealth gap, a lot of folks don't truly understand and um, have their own narratives. So I think Shahara will bring some great perspectives on that. And she's actually a certified financial planner, professional and life strategist. Thank you. Thank you both, Tita and Tiffany. I really appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. (laughs) Yes, me too. Because, you know, I think, as we know, money is a hard topic anyway, right? Yeah, it is. (laughs) Amongst anybody in any type of scenario. So Mm -hmm. um, I think this will bring some great light and some insight. Um, so unless Tiffany, you had something that you wanted to immediately ask, I'm going to dive right in. Dive in, dive in, go for it. Okay. So first of all, I'm actually going to take it to basic. Okay. What does the wealth gap actually mean? Great question. When we talk about our society. Yeah. So there's a couple different numbers that I can share that can give us a perspective on what the racial wealth gap is. So uh, things that really surprised me was the one that by 2053, black wealth will have gone to zero, zero dollars. So the, you know when you think about net worth being assets minus liabilities, the, it is projected that in 2053, black wealth will go to zero. So it's just unbelievable. Um, so I'm gonna state some more facts too. Okay. Um, there's also a uh, stat out there that in terms of years, the racial wealth gap between black families and white families is 228 years. So black families are 228 years behind um, from a wealth perspective. And then um, there's newer numbers, but the ones that I can recall right off the bat is 2016, there were some stats given that Black families in 2016 had $17,000 in wealth, whereas white families had $171,000 in wealth. So both of them, those numbers are not the best, but (laughs) it's just telling that 10 
you know, that white wealth is 10 times more than black wealth on average. Um, so that just lays a foundation for our conversation. Um, some facts that, that really stunned me just being um, a financial planner, I knew that there were issues, right? But I wasn't until I got into the profession that I really started to, you know, understand or even learn those facts. And it's just been um, astounding, you know? So I just said, well, this is my opportunity to do what I can. Um, I know that I'm not gonna be able to be the only one to solve it, but, um, but if I can do my part, then that, you know, that's what I'm doing. And so I do believe awareness helps people to, you know, and framing it that way. I mean, I honestly, I still can't understand how zero, you know, how does it get to zero? I, I still have a hard time understanding that. So I'm really hoping in 2053, but, you know, with, I'm not the only one out here talking about this. So I'm just really hoping that we'll just change that and we'll change that narrative and that won't happen. So that's my goal is to help prevent that from happening. Yeah. God. I saw your face. I didn't know. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Where to stop? Go, go. Okay. We just oh got to lay it out, right? Because oh <laughs> I'm like, okay. Because I have questions, but okay, wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Because I, okay. So you're saying by 2053, the wealth for Black is zero. Yes, it's projected to go it's to zero. Projected to be zero. Um, yeah. and I know there's the even, you know, and I can't remember the numbers. Even for Latin Americans, it's projected to go to zero at some point. Um, also, it's supposed to increase for white families. White wealth will increase around that time. So um, that's the projections. Mm -hmm. And I know you probably. I mean, I know we don't know every everything. These are projections. Yeah. But where, but where do these projections come from? Like. How do they come up with these projections though, right? Yeah, so, you know, there's an organization that does the studies. Um, there's Prosperity Now, that's a great organization oh, to I've look up. Yeah, they do studies on that. Um, I would love to attend their conference. Um, I don't think enough financial planners attend, um, but they've done, you know, those studies on that. Um, there's Brookings, um, they've done studies as well. So a combination of those organizations that have, you know, taken the time and, and then, you know, just read for me reading articles out there that um, talk about like why this has happened. Um, and so, you know, and just before I get into that, one thing I've understood is that even with working with black clients, white clients, you know, they may not understand how they're succeeding or not succeeding, like the, the external factors that might be coming their way. Um, and so there's so many factors. And I know you guys talk about all, a lot of factors. There's, you know, the income gap. I mean, there's just so many factors that affect. But um, one that really stood out to me is even the homesteading acts. Uh, there were various homesteading acts uh, between 1868 and 1946. Um, and so part of my book is to dispel the myth that people pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Yeah. A lot of white Americans and immigrants received um, land during those times. And so, um, so, you know, they were able to claim land, uh, go out west and just, you know, with very little qualifications 
and paperwork, they were able to stake claim on land. And um, looking up that, it was, and I'm going to look at my notes too, but 246 million acres of Western land was claimed between 1868 and 19, um, actually 1934. So, you know, just being able to say you have land, that's major where uh, there's been just a history of exclusion, you know, in our country. So, um, you know, and even today, uh, they said in 2000, and maybe maybe the census can tell us now, but 46 million adult descendants um, have benefited from various homestead acts, you know, that it, today. Right. So there's even, wow. this history is all of our history. Right. So the reason why, you know, white Americans are where they are is because they were given various things. No one's saying that nobody worked hard. Right. Just that there's been these handouts that were given, whereas, you know, in 1868, you know, we were looking for a 40 acres and a mule as black Americans and still would love to have that, you know, for building the country and um, making sure that we're all able to benefit from the freedoms in this country and, and the, even the infrastructure um, was done by Black Americans. So, you know, and they were just left like, okay, you know, we're free, supposedly. Now go out and make your life. Um, so a lot of that is part of it. And then when you look at the, um, when you look at land and redlining, the history there, uh, you know, I was just talking with someone last week who lives in New Jersey and he's a black American. He lives in a particular neighborhood and he said the same house that he owns now, couple, couple blocks down would be, you know, three or $400,000 more. And all of that is due to redlining. So again, that all affects your net worth. You know, if you're home, you've got a mortgage on it and it's not growing as much, it may still be growing but it's not growing because you're in a black community or a community that is considered, you know, not as progressive, then you'll end up um, having a lower net worth overall. So those are just some of the various factors. And I'm sure there's a lot more of that, <laughs> you know, that I haven't even uncovered yet. Um, you know, I mean, we can go on and on, uh, even with insurance. Uh, you know, black families have a, we have a history with insurance. I mean, you can look at MetLife and New York Life. I mean, companies has been around for years. I mean, New York Life, they were able to have a, you know, a, a slave, um, an enslaved owner, basically, someone who owned um, enslaved people, have him be able to, um, you know, get a life insurance policy on his enslaved human being. Um, so there's this history uh, that has affected the black community and just the community overall where we've seen these differences and it's still going on. Um, let's even talk about the uh, Tulsa, like various massacres that have occurred throughout the years. So, you know, the 1921 um, even before that, you know, some Black Americans, one of them, O.W. Gurley, he actually benefited from the Homestead Act. And I didn't realize that there were any Black Americans in my research. I, I didn't even realize there were any Black Americans that benefited from, uh, you know, the Homestead Act. So he did get some land, about 40 acres. And uh, he decided to um, set roots in Tulsa. 
And so over a course of some years, he was able to build up, he was able to get streets and all types of, you know, businesses and, and various other um, Black Americans uh, purchased land. He wanted to sell his 40 acres to Black Americans specifically. And so they built up, and also because of segregation, um, you know, obviously they, they weren't able to patronize anyone else. So they built their own grocery stores. They built their own hair salons, their own uh, tailor shops, everything that a community would need, hotels, ballrooms, cinemas. Yeah. They built all that up. And, um, you know, June 1st, 1921, all of that was burnt to the ground due to a massacre and it wasn't without a fight you know a lot of people might think that you know black americans just they didn't have the equipment to fight no they fought it was just they were overcome by um help i mean some of the research shows that there were bombs there were they saw that there were aerial bombs being thrown so wow. no one knows really you know it hasn't america hasn't um, the government hasn't admitted but you know there there most likely was some help oh definitely <laughs> so 300 you know and that's what they counted 300 um americans black americans died in the tulsa race massacre um you know of 1921 so we're about to enter a hundred year anniversary and there are still there's still a need for reparations there's like three, two or three survivors that are like 106 wow. years old or so. Somebody's like 100, I think. He was six months old when it all happened. Wow. Um, so he's still alive. And so there's just so many um, factors, but that is, you know, the Tulsa race massacre is one example. So right. you build all this wealth, but then you have terror, you know, in your community to tear it all completely down. And so um, people moved away. Some people stayed, uh, you know, that it was just a variety of things that had occurred, um, you know, where they never built it back up. I mean, highways just running, going through your neighborhood. Uh, very, you know, if we're gonna build a highway, where do we build it? Oh, let's build it in a black community. So now we're splitting up the black community where, you know, where they had restaurants and just all these activities, these businesses, we're just gonna throw a highway in there. And, and a lot of Detroit, Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from, if you talk to the older black Americans, they'll tell you, yeah, this neighborhood used to be thriving. I mean, Miami, um, what was, I forget the neighborhood in Miami, but, uh, but there's, there's these thriving, these neighborhoods that used to be thriving and not anymore because because- Because of racism at the end of the day, they didn't wanna see black people propel and excel yes cross and gain gain well become prosperous exactly and so you could just imagine like the just that terror you know it's like okay we built something and we're doing well and we're i mean the dollar the black dollar it was uh you know just various accounts say 19 to 100 times it just circulated in their community um during those times because wow. um because of that so it's just I, I, you know, it, it's a lot. It's a lot of various factors. And, and I know, Tiffany, I know you have questions. So I'm gonna, I, <laughs> I know, I, I lay a lot out there. But, <laughs> I always have questions. I know you have questions, but see, but I'm, I'm so glad that you, you are 
bringing this up because, and I know I've mentioned it before in conversations that I've had with Tiffany and we might've had a guest or so, but you know, the whole narrative of like, oh, blacks would have more if they just do more. Mm-hmm. And without even understanding the history and things that had transpired when we try to do more, when we do do more, then that is destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's it's lessened, like you're saying the redlining, the homes that could be the same square footage, the same type of foundations, not like there's a gold foundation versus a bronze, you know what I mean? Like the same situation, but because maybe more of that neighborhood has black individuals, they're just gonna, you know, um, the houses are just not as valuable. Not as valuable, yeah. And people are, and, are not aware of that. And so they, 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 they spill things out that's not true or they just off their assumptions without really understanding um, the true narrative and history of why there is a struggle and why 2053, you yeah. know, because you said what, last year was 17,000 to the black family and 120, yeah, was, that was 2016. Um, but I know that there's some more recent numbers. They're like, it's still 10 times, but it went up. Maybe it's like 18,181 or something like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, Tiffany, you have I- <laughs> so much. I mean, so much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, like, well, T Tower and I often refer to the system, right? The system has created the, the disparities in every way and still. Um, support the system that was built still supports um, the injustices and, you know, the discrimination and all the different gaps that um, people of colour face compared to white people. Like we talk about privilege when we talk about privilege, it doesn't mean that you haven't had a hard life, but you've had more access to things than, you know, a lot of black people have had. And you touched on so, like, like you said, there's so many different things that have created this wealth gap through yeah. centuries, centuries and centuries. And the, I mean, I'm sure we could go hours and hours and hours on just those things in itself. Definitely. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise this because I know this is what white people will be thinking, right? So I play the white person because I am white. <laughs> but um, um, my thought process went to well when you said about in 2053 that the the wealth of Black Americans will be zero, I'm like, how is that possible, right? Like, that's just incredibly scary. And two, then I go to, and I'm going to say it out loud because this is what my white brothers and sisters will probably do, is, but wait, I know a lot of wealthy Black people, right? Like, and they'll say, Oprah. I have a lot of wealthy. That's one person. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot of wealthy, but like all my circle of black friends are established, you know, with established careers, whatever, like Tita, you, you you know, either business owners or, you know, I've got a- Broke business owners, but okay. What did you say? What? Broke business owners compared to... Oh, broke. But you know what I mean, right? Like, I I live in a neighbourhood, you know, a pretty diverse neighbourhood. There's people that are doing well for themselves. So, and and I always think about 
um, uh, progressive, like the progression that we make, even though I feel like we were, we taken 10 step backwards last year with Trump and all those things. Like, I think, you know, if you think more, um, uh, even universally, we're meant to grow. We're meant to progress, even when things feel like that they're going backwards. So what, what would you say are the possibilities uh, and how do, how as a, a black person and, and a white person, can we contribute to making sure that at 2053, that mm-hmm. there isn't that, that, you know, black people, are, I, I can't even say it. Like I can't even wrap my head around it. I know. So what do we do now with yeah. what we've got with where we're at? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And I think when you look at, if you look at your neighbors and you look at your black neighbors, you look at your white neighbors, um, one of the things that people may not talk about is just even the the passing on of wealth, right? So there's this passing on of wealth. So uh, a lot of your black neighbors, uh, not all of them, I'm sure, because you know everybody, there's differences, but they might be the first to graduate from college in their family. Yeah. So, right. So, yeah. And so, um, so they're looking the part, but they still might be reaching back there. There's this thing called the black tax. So they're reaching back. They're making sure that, you know, they're taking care of other family members, not to say that white families are not doing that. Um, but you know, I've heard of, you know, people say, oh, I graduated college, um, and I got money, you know, maybe 10, 20,000, I got some money to buy a house or that doesn't happen a lot in the black communities. Um, that wealth is not, there's no wealth being created. So, you know, back in, even when my grandparents, I, my mom was telling me a story and I even talk about this in my book too, where my grandfather, he, he had some insurance guy that would come to the house. And a lot of black families will tell you this. There's, there's an insurance guy. He came to the house, collected the premium. And, uh, you know, they, it was for burial usually. And then, you know, and then from there, you know, I just had someone tell me last week, my grandmother, she paid that premium on time. She made sure she paid it. But when she passed away, I still had to, you know, dip into my 401k to help pay for uh, the difference. So how is she paying for 40, 50 years on a burial policy um, and not have enough money to be buried? These are the things that have happened. So, you know, so one of the things that I'm really big on and even um, my colleagues, this is what, you know, we want is when we work with black families, making sure that there is life insurance in place as well, you know, as a part of a way to pass on wealth, Um, you know, and a lot of black uh, families will say, yes, we want life insurance. And there's a survey that was done by uh, Haven Life, uh, which is a life insurance company. Yes, we want life insurance. But if you look at the white families versus the black families, how much life insurance they have, um, it is significantly less between the two. Um, black families have usually on average have less. So if we can get even more black families to have um, life insurance and over the years, it was just sold to us to do a burial policy. Over the years, we were just told that 
you know, uh, your your health risks, all the all the factors that they they used for black families was um, really difficult. It made it very difficult and very expensive to get insurance. I even looked at, um, I, I have moved, when I lived in Phoenix, just as an example, I moved from one area of town to another. They were both decent, nice looking if you looked at them, but uh, they won't tell you with the property and casualty what their factors are in terms of how they determine what you're gonna pay as a premium but I'm sure the neighborhood you live in has something to do with it. My premium went up because I moved to this particular neighborhood. And when I looked around, the majority of the people were, you know, there were white people, but there were Hispanic, there were blacks. It was a lot more in that community. So my mm -hmm. premium went up. That was the one obvious thing that I saw was mm -hmm. the difference. Um, and they can't tell you. They, I don't even know, like I had a lady, um, you know, do my premium. I was like, why, why, why does it go up? Why, why is, but there's factors that are unknown that we don't even know about um, that are involved in what we're paying um, to, you know, to just get basic, you know, just insurances and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I remember teaching at that time, I was teaching a, uh, a class to uh, in a community college, South Mountain Community College, and everybody was, they were seniors in high school, but they were taking a college financial, they were taking college classes and one was personal finance. And I was telling them, look at, do a, do a little quote and, and let's see the various, you know, various um, quotes that are out there. Because I've been surprised that my quote went up once I came down this way. And all, my whole class, the majority of them were of Mexican descent. So um, zip code, so they know who lives in the zip code per se. It's yes. basically what you're saying. And based on who lives in the zip code, if they sounds like they have a little bit more melanin in their skin, they prices go up. Uh, yeah, and and but but they don't tell us that that's what it but, is. But uh, but yeah. I mean, yeah. I have my own little personal, right, <laughs> study, but those are some of the things that, that are going on, you know, I mean, um, like I said, after, after the Civil War, um, like I said, the factors that they use to give life insurance, so, so, so I would say, and I would love to do even more research, but I would say a lot of Black families just gravitated to burial because that was already super pricey. And um, so it's crazy to hear that, you know, that's still a topic. I was in a life insurance meeting last week and, um, and they, they were talking about, you know, insurance amongst black families. And, um, and they were talking about a lot of black families still talk about burial policies or they talk about the bad experience. So once we get that out of the way, you know, the bad experiences, the, you know, just the, the trauma, really, right? So there's a lot of trauma involved. Um, we got to, you know, get get through that, uh, you know, address that. There's, but there, you know, and that's why my book actually is called the In the Meantime, because I'm like, in the meantime, what can we do? Yeah. 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 So that's one that, of the things like creating generational, passing the wealth on, having better life insurance policies, creating yeah. an a institution where the life insurance policies aren't racist, basically <laughs> discriminative. Yeah. So, what, so what else in the meantime? Sorry, Tita. Yeah, no, no, I was going to ask because, I mean, because yeah. even to this day, when, I, when you say like, you know, I have a business, yes, okay, I do. But when I think about 
some of the other business owned by white, even just white women, just even like, let's say you want to get some capital or something to just expand and grow. Cause you know, in, in America, we know we have to invest in something to typically grow and scale, right? But it just feels like too, that there's still to this day, so many barriers against black businesses who, because maybe don't have resources or um, what do you call it? When you have to have something, not a, what's it called? Um, collateral, not collateral. What's it called when you might have to have something that they can take if you default or something? I can't think of the word. I'm like collateral. But oh, okay. Yeah. You know, so there's not maybe as those resources or family members who have funds to be able to, you know, to, to invest in your business so that you can move on to get maybe that capital loan or whatever. You see what I'm saying? So then yes. there's still always going to be that gap because like you're saying, if we're already whatever, 200 something years behind. <laughs> yeah. said behind, no yeah. wonder then it's so hard to move forward even in getting loans or mm-hmm. getting looked at because the number second, the second question, there's something that they ask, you're like, well, no, I don't have that. Whereas maybe, you know, 70% of white business owners do have that, but not black business owners because we're really, really coming from scratch. Like we're really bootstrapping it, right? We are starting, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. So those are things like, so those are right now. So that's not like, you know what I mean? That's not like 80 years ago. So that's where my frustration is, is like, so in the meantime, it's like, how do we, how do we shift these practices that are so mm-hmm. archaic, yeah. discriminatory? Because mm-hmm. otherwise, yeah. not. 2053, you're right. I'm going to be like, yeah. Tiffany, I need to come. And like I said, you know, so, I'm trying to look at what can I do because right. the system is just so overwhelming, right? Yeah. Like, what do you? what do you do? So, you know, my whole goal too is education. And I, I, some of the folks that I even highlight in my book, I have stories of people who, and that's the part of it too, just have overcome despite the economic injustice and they've been able to do things. And it's just examples. So one example um, is Ariane Simone and, um, you know, researching her and learning about her. She uh, has a program, uh, Fearless, I think it's called the Fearless Fund. And so she helps black women, um, you know, to get funding for their businesses. And, um, you know, and and I've been following her the last year or so since I learned about her. And, um, you know, I think she recently was able to pair up with Walmart. So there's places, there's people like this um, who are doing things to try to, you know, impact more, more people. Um, there, you know, like one, one person that I interviewed, Keba Conte, he basically, he has a really cool, um, coffee shop in San Francisco and, uh, you know, with COVID, you know, he was able to make it a venue and place some, a place somewhere people would go. And he, he's a photographer too. So he was able to show off his photography and sell that and bring an artist. It was really, it's a really cool concept, but when COVID hit, what happens? <laughs> no one can go to those places. So, you know, he had to cut back a lot, cut out the Wi-Fi, cut out, you know, lay some folks off. And, you know, by the time June hit, 
you know, after George Floyd, he was able to, um, you know, really show people he was one of those black businesses because being having a black owned business became very popular, as you guys remember at that time. And so, yeah, so he he became very popular. Everybody wanted to support, find a business to support. Uh, And so he had to pivot and begin to sell his coffee online. He only had like he had a Shopify account, but he pivoted. Uh, now he sells a lot of coffee online. He has a thriving business from that angle. And now they're back open, you know, but but from that, he was able to get, you know, another business. And then he was able to connect with Oprah Winfrey. And he now is on her, he was on her favorite things list back in December. So, so I'm also, you know, not just trying to state those horrible facts and, you know, us drown in that, you know, and stay there, but just to see that, you know, these are the things that people can do um, to, in the meantime, because some of the things I, I believe, I believe in reparations, you know, I believe there should be some type of, um, you know, coming to terms with that, not just an apology, not just, you know, apology would be great though. I know, I know that there's an apology being um, put out for the Turks from the Ottoman empire, things like that. And I was just like, well, what about me? What about my ancestors here in America? When are we going to get an apology? Um, You know, and then on top of that, you know, I need checks cut. Yeah. So that that's the next that that's really what I want, you know, more than anything. Um, so in the meantime, until those things happen, we're, you know, we're coming together as a community, we're helping people out, we're looking at, you know, uh, for instance, people help fund my book campaign. I mean, just amazing things that people are out there doing to help, you know, help um, propel people up, um, you know. And, and so, we had someone on about reparations. I don't know if you saw that episode. Yeah. That? that was really good. She yeah. broke down reparations really well. And um, I believe in reparations as well. So that's, yeah. Definitely. Who was that that you said broke that down really well? Um, her, her name is Ciara Slater, but okay. so she was on um, a, a podcast because actually she got to be part of a group where these white women did give thousands of dollars not in donation, because you know a lot of times some you know well-off white people are like okay I'll I'll go ahead and tax deductible give the money but it's tax deductible so the whole point was it couldn't be tax deductible and mm-hmm. you had to truly understand why you were doing that so she actually got to be um, part of that uh, she a recipient uh, of it yes and so Very I'm like nice. okay so we need to nice. replicate this. Definitely. Yeah. And that's the other thing too, Justice for Greenwood. There's an organization or foundation that is fighting to help, you know, even if we can just take some of these massacres and make sure that they get the descendants of those massacres get reparations, then we could start to, you know, you know, go back. But this was a hundred years ago, you know, so if, and these descendants are still alive, they're still, I mean, some of them are thriving, some of them are not. Um, I just got an article, uh, I was on a podcast a couple weeks ago and the guy that posted it, um, he sent me an article about uh, these, this uh, community or this black woman. And I'm sure, I think it was her family. So I, I don't want to mix it up, but maybe I can put the article, give you guys the article. Oh yeah, for the yeah, show please. notes. Yeah, yeah, for the show notes. So, um, so I read the article 
she bought a property in the early 1900s that was on like the coast in, in California in like the, I believe it was the LA area, but you guys could just imagine, you know, overlooking, it was a resort for black Americans overlooking the water and just a place because it was, it was segregation at that time. So a place where they could go and have some rest and reprieve um, due to threats, the KKK, all of these things. And then eminent domain, you know, we're just going to take it. We're just going to take the property. It's no longer yours anymore. That's what happened basically. So the property was taken away and um, the descendants are, they said a lot of them are in poverty today. And they're fighting, not just for an apology, but to be made back whole again. And so, um, so it's worth about 50 million, at least um, $50 million. So this is like some of the examples that have happened. So if we could start to, you know, even take those situations. Right. And be able to make rectify that, rectify those situations. And then my whole thing too is okay, once we get the money, what do we do with it? Do right. we handle right. it? And so yeah. that is what you know I incorporate as well in the book, just to you know make sure, like, okay, when we get it, this is what we want to do and we want to make sure because otherwise it'll just go back into the economy. And so what's the problem if that's the issue, right? Like it's going to go back to you guys anyway, but, um, but the goal is to not have it do that, like to make wealth from it, to make wealth from it. So, so what, yeah. So what are some of the things that you recommend to like, keep, keep creating, circulating the wealth for black people to get out of the, the system, so to speak? Yes, Hit, the pocket. Yes. Hit their pockets. Okay, let me stop. Say that again. <laughs> Say that again. Hit their pockets because we are one of the number one consumerist uh, race, and we are only what thirteen percent of us. Right. I mean, if we spend the most. Uh, I think at least one trillion or something we spend. That. Yeah. So, so we've got to redirect that. Yes. <laughs> um. So redirecting that is going to get be foundationally. You know, we got to make sure we have an emergency fund, something for when you know some of these foundational uh, financial yeah. principles um, are necessary. So you know, making sure that we have an emergency fund that we know how to live. I, I do have my book broken in different sections, like build and live and save and oh, give. Good. And so, you know, yeah. And so basically, you know, you got to build. Let's focus on the net worth equation, you know, assets minus liabilities equals net worth. So, um, and not feel ashamed, you know, because I will say Black women uh, have spent a lot of money on education. So we are the most, as a whole, don't even get me started. The most educated, the most broke. I don't want to trigger anybody, (laughs) you know. Started. Oh, let, me, let me put myself on mute. Woo. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, but understand that when we are reducing the liability, that's the debts, the consumer debt, student loan debt, all of those things, we are increasing our net worth. And don't be, if when you just become very uh, truthful with yourself and you look at your assets, look at your liabilities and, you know, be honest. And then begin to focus in on what you can, because if the number is negative, then we've got to pay off those debts and begin to um, get, let's get to a zero net worth. (laughs) Let's get to zero 
then let's move to $5, then let's move to a thousand, then let's move to, you know, so like continuing the focus on that equation. So we're not just focused on, you know, getting out of debt all the time, um, but really getting disciplined and thinking ahead, you know, thinking ahead, like some of the sacrifices, I, I know people hate this, but you know, in the meantime, we are going to have to make some sacrifices. We are going to have to, um, you know, take the time to, you know, maybe we don't do student loan debt. Maybe we get a trade. Maybe we, um, you know, yeah. take the time to, you know, work in HVAC, I mean, or, or plumbing or just any of those yeah. things, build your business, make six figures, then go ahead, get some education if you still want that MBA or whatever. Um, there's a lot of other ways, you know, very, a lot of creative folks in my community. So how do we make money? How do we have multiple streams of income? Right. Not just focusing on, you know, when I was a kid, it was like, get a good job, get yeah. good grades. Yeah. You know, insurance. Yes. But that was the thing we were told, like, if you go to college and get an education, you're not going to be poor, right? Then you right. are going to be able to be at the level as the white people. I mean, that's what the story that was sold to us, especially from the colleges. Absolutely. But it didn't tell us like, okay, yeah, great. You were accepted and here's the money for you. But didn't say anything about like, but you're going to have this big old loan. Right. And this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. So I was even telling, you know, you know, Leslie, I was like, you like both know her. She's a finance yeah. person too. I was like, I feel like the colleges owe some sort of reparation as well. Like, because they bamboozle us. Like a lot of us were the first generation co college students. I didn't know anything about like financial aid or like I had to pay this money back. You know what I mean? Like there's so much yeah. that I didn't know that it was irresponsible from the college's perspective not to share truly what this means. Otherwise I could have made a different choice of how I went about. So and then I didn't even get the job that paid to cover it. You know what I mean? So ooh, yeah. that's why I had to put myself. So it's like, yeah. And that it's like that pie in the sky dream. And now for me, I did have a bent towards, I didn't want, I, I just didn't understand a debt. Like I didn't want to have debt, you know, I didn't, you know, so, um, so I did get, you know, a scholarship minority um, engineering program offered me a scholarship or it was one of, but those, I, I think my school took that away. Um, you know, this was in the eight, late 89 to, or 90s or 93, something around there. So I did get a scholarship that was given to me because I was a black person and I have no qualms about that, um, you know, and um, because I, I had the merit, it's just that I was being excluded from other, other ways to get it. Right. Um, right. So, um, so that helped me a lot, but I will say, you know, um, I did get a student loan at the very end because I wanted to take a senior trip, right? So there, you know, I was like, oh, let me get a student loan and I'll take a senior trip. That'll float me until September and then I can start my job. Um, and it was like $3,000. So I, I paid it off pretty quickly, but still, you know, I did get a student. So I could see how people could fall into the trap. Um, and then on top of that, you can, um, you got the tables. <laughs> the, the uh, credit card tables, right? So you had that uh, when you came to campus too. Um, and okay, we're gonna give you a dry erase board. Gosh. We're gonna give you a water bottle, a t-shirt. And here we go. And I remember, you know, before I even graduated college, I had a, I had a friend who 
she didn't have those disciplines, right? So for me, I got the I got the koozie or the you know the dry erase board, the t-shirt, um, but I didn't use the credit card. Um, she used them, and and she was looking great on campus, right? Um, but she did end up having to having to um, file bankruptcy before college was over. You know, um, I don't know that she finished college, but you know, just those kind of stories that happen. So we just have to be able to, we, we need for financial literacy. Um, and this is all Americans need it, uh, especially the black community. And so, like I said, this is part of what I'm trying to do. And I know there's other folks out there trying to do all that as well. It's yeah, big. It's, it's, big. it's big. It's really interesting, again, coming from a different country and a different culture where um, going to university isn't as much of a um, like a must have, like a, a push that is in this country. Like I remember when I moved out here eight years ago and I was applying for jobs and I had to put my, is it GED here? Like whatever you're, yeah. yeah. Like on every application and I'm like, I have over 15 years experience. This is ridiculous right now. And I didn't, I didn't study what I was, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's interesting, like I'm starting to hear more and more people that are in educating about finance um, and having different streams of income and all those sorts of things talking about, hey, maybe you don't have to go to university. Right. Maybe that doesn't mean that that creates the ideal job. Like this, right. I'm seeing just in eight years that I've been here, fi finally yeah. there's this shift of like this, this pressure of that if you don't have a college degree, that you don't, well, I certainly didn't get it from, from my, my family and friends. Like I, I didn't go to university. I went to a community college and I'm doing just fine, you know, um, yeah, but never yeah. had that pressure. Yep. It's just not the same. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fantastic that you didn't have that pressure. I mean, for us as well, you know, pressure. we weren't able to go to college or yeah. financially. So it wasn't even a question. Like that was like what was going to take us to our promised land was to be able to go to a college. Um, yeah, that that's what I mean. Like that kind of um, uh, mindset that if you don't go to college, you're not going to succeed. Where I was, I was very much like seeing people that were electricians and, you know, even like just receptionists or whatever they were living a good life you know like my, my stepfather was a tradesman my my dad was an entrepreneur my mom was a hairstylist and had good lives and I was like well really yeah I, think, I don't know what I want to do so yeah right well I think the perspective though too from America in that especially when it came to black families like if you were a like going to college was huge because you yeah could, that you makes sense yeah, do it right because it wasn't available and or right. go to HBCU, right? True. Yeah. And right. so when you were able to start to go to different colleges besides the HBCUs, I think there yeah. was a level of thinking of like this is going to help our family, you know, get out of the rut. This is going to help our family be right. able to get a leg up. So right. it wasn't. So it. I don't know if it was from the pressure of like, oh, you got to go to college. It was more for like, we've got to this. If this is going to change the trajectory of our livelihood, yeah, and give us more bread for us and the family, then we should do it. But as we see, well, as I see, 
I was bamboozled. That wasn't yeah, I feel like we've been hoodwinked and bamboozled <laughs> by that because you know what I'm saying? Because even as a kid, I remember I have a story where I was um I was like eleven or twelve and I loved doing hair. I could braid, I just had an affinity. It was natural, natural to for me to be able to do hair. Um, and so I was doing my cousin's hair at a family reunion. We went into the hotel room. I pressed it out, curled it. She came downstairs, swinging her hair back and forth. I was so excited. And um, one of my cousins said, you're not trying to be a hairstylist, are you? Mm. And I was 11 or 12. And I said, ooh, I guess maybe that probably isn't a good thing. Let me go ahead and be an engineer. Yeah, because engineers make a lot of money um, and all this good stuff. So these were the types of pressures because we were already doing that. We were already right. hairstylists. We were already plumbers. We were already electricians. We were already doing all of those things. So it, like, like Tita said, doing the grass always seems greener, right? So, you know, be going to college, that was the thing, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to do. And then when you have the Northern black versus the black, uh, the Southern black, when I talked to my, yeah. Cause when I talked to, there was the great migration. So because of Jim Crow, a lot of Southern blacks moved to the North um and to get away from all the uh you know the terrorism that was occurring and now we've got industry so now we're in this industrial era we're now being able to work at car manufacturers we're able to do work at the steel mill and you know you look at detroit back at that time from the 20s maybe to the to the the 60s or so they they didn't have to go to college because they were getting pensions they were getting all kinds of stuff now those areas are dead once those companies pulled out now they're ghost towns and so there there's been a cycle we've had a cycle you know but so it and and when i look at my parents versus my husband's parents his parents you know stayed in the south that they all did that. So they became teachers. They went to HBCUs. My parents, when they graduated high school, they were not encouraged to go to college. Um, it was work at the Bell Company, work at, you know, work yeah. at the steel mills, work at these various places. So my dad ended up going to, um, you know, going to Vietnam. And then he came back and did get a degree uh, because of the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. And my mom just went, she went to um, Ohio Bell. So Ohio Bell, she worked there 42 years. That's what you did. You know, yeah. you worked, you didn't, she, you know, she wasn't told or encouraged to, you know, go to college. So when that happened, oh, my girls are going to college, you yeah. know? Yeah, that uh, makes so a lot I'm of sense. I'm one of the, you know, one of three and you, you guys are going to college. Yeah. <laughs> That and I think I was, it's like the next generation now, now the next generation is like, oh, I went to college. It's not cracked right. up to what it's, I'm in a whole lot of debt. Now I know <laughs> that I can be a entrepreneur or I can be, I can have a trade or, you know, I can invest that's in real estate. Fine. Yeah. That yeah. may, yeah. Got and it. I think so I that's can, some of the perspective yeah. <laughs> that we got to yeah. put around it. Yeah. And I went mainly because I thought I would stop being racist again, or I wouldn't experience racism anymore. That was my you know, but you already know where I was raised. And so that was in my naive perspective was like, okay, let me go to college. Mm Because I went later, remember I went later in life because of all the different things, but I was like, okay, then I can get into corporate and then I'll be respected and please. Yeah. That's why I do my own business now, but that's right. Another. That's why I do my own podcast. <laughs> I will say that for another. Yeah. 
I was, yeah, it was all about merit to me. I thought it was about merit. No, it's not about merit. <laughs> so let me just go ahead and do my own thing. Yeah. So yeah, we, yeah, that's a whole different conversation too. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of your own thing, the where can people connect with you? What's the name of your book? And then what are three things? So um, I'm going to prompt you here because this is what I took away. Three things to um, close the the wealth gap. One, um, life insurance, invest in life insurance or insurance. Um, create, just create wealth like a safety net. Another one, or, or when I say life insurance, I mean like create wealth that you can pass on, I guess is part yeah. of it, right? Yeah, life um, insurance is part of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then yeah. Um, create a safety net and then reinvest in your Black community. Yeah. Anything else? Absolutely. Those are great, great things. And, and, you know, there's a lot of other factors, but like understand your cash flow um, mm. and invest, you know, make your money work right. harder for you. Uh, don't necessarily think that you just need one income. A majority of uh, people have like three wealthy people have multiple streams, like at least three streams of income. Working on it, girl. Woo! Yeah. So not, you know, I hear people now that I'm married, they'll say, yeah, I don't have, I'm single. I don't have, you know, well, I was single a lot of years. So, so uh, you know, from being on both sides, I'm like, we need multiple girl, streams. No girl, yeah. Or yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need. Yeah. Yeah. We all need. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some of the extra things. Um, so the book, the title is called In the Meantime, Own Your Financial Narrative. And like I said, I wrote it because of the racial wealth gap. Um, and I want to do my part to help close it. And then I'm sharing those inspiring stories of people who have overcome, you know, and um, they're still overcoming and they're constantly finding ways to really define what financial freedom means to them according to their definition. And as we all talked about, we've all experienced, you know, some type of uh, uh, like what financial freedom is. Oh, it's getting a good job, getting a pension, you know, getting um, education and oh yeah, I'll go into debt, but we don't have to do that. So really um, being able to do things differently than what, what we've been taught. Yeah. Awesome. So where can people find you? How can they get connected with you? We'll put it in the show notes, but for those sure. who are listening right now. Yeah. So yourstoryfinancial.com um, is my website and I worked with Tita to help um, refresh it and rejuvenate it and all of that good stuff. So, uh, so it's a beautiful site. Um, go check that out. And then also I'll put it in the link. It's really hard, but like um, to be able to pre-order my book, um, I do have uh, the ability, I'll be doing my campaign till May the 1st, but then I just talked to someone and I, I might continue to allow people to get a pre-order copy, uh, pre-order a copy of my signed paperback. Um, and so I'll make sure that link is in the uh, show notes as well. Awesome. Um, yeah. So, but basically once you go on my website, you'll find me YouTube, Instagram, you'll find all of my various um, platforms that I, social media platforms that I'm on. Awesome. Can't wait for your books, book to come I out. Know. Like, I'm so going to stuff. build wealth right now. It's it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Women particularly <laughs> got to, we got to rule yeah. the world. Okay. Tisa, yeah. how can they find us? 
You can find us at blackgirlwhitegirlconversations.com. And if you go to our website, you'll get to our YouTube channel. You'll get to our Instagram. But if you want to find us separately, go to a black girl, a white girl on Instagram. And we are on our Facebook. So if you're watching this now, you know where to find us. If you don't, then just go put in Tita or Tiffany. It'll come up. (laughs) Tita, Tita Walker, you Tita you, Walker, everything will come up, unfortunately. Good or bad, no. Jahan, thank you so, so, so much for coming on. This has been a pleasure. I have learned so much. And um, everybody who's listening or anybody that's listening, please share and go and buy her book. Yes, because we are not <laughs> going to be zero at 2050. No. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.